Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 87th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So uh, this week, we'll be deviating from our normal schedule to talk to one of my personal favorites in our industry, uh, JC Peretz from All Star Charts. Uh, JC is the founder of All Star Charts, which is a technical analysis publication for hedge funds, mutual funds, and financial advisors, family offices, and individual investors. Um, so, you know, we love the work that JC and his team put out. We mention it all the time on this, uh, you know, on this show. Um, so we're super excited to have him on. So JC, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously we're in uh, some pretty interesting times right now, I would say, but uh, there's no shortage of headlines and things surrounding the stock market. Um, so let's kind of just jump right into it. But before we do that, JC, um, can you just start off by telling listeners how you got started in the industry? What led to where you are today? I know you just moved from the West Coast back to the East Coast. So, you know, where'd you start your story? Um, well, listen, it, it, it's great to be here. First of all, you mentioned, you know, the market. You know, I always hear the market's crazy. The market's interesting. Start paying attention because you guys talk to a lot of financial advisors and investors and stuff like that, obviously. Uh, so start paying attention to when it's always the case. I talk to so many people every day, professionals like the best. These are some of the biggest money managers in the world and new investors, high school friends, colleagues, everybody in between. Every conversation starts the same way. Hey, crazy market, JC. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. Wow. What a crazy day in the market, huh? Yeah. What's crazy about it? It's always crazy. If it, that, it, that's what makes it normal, right? That's right. Start paying attention because it's actually really funny. Um, it's like a little in, internal joke I play with myself now. I, can't <laughs> I love it. Um, so where did the charts come from? So I grew up in Miami. My family came from Cuba in the early 1960s, um, you know, trying to escape communism, um, you know, came to America so that their kids and grandchildren can have opportunities that wouldn't have been the case had they stayed. Thank God. Because at the time, a lot of people were staying in Cuba because they thought it was only going to be temporary. And um, it was always like we were they were going to go back to Cuba, whatever. Needless to say, 50 years later, nobody's back. Right. Um, so fortunately, they came to America. You know, my my parents were educated um, well and everything like that. And uh, I was a baseball player growing up as a kid. Can you imagine that a Cuban kid in Miami playing baseball? <laughs> so to totally fit the profile. I was uh, not good enough to play at the University of Miami, but uh, good enough to still play Division One at Fairfield University in Connecticut. So sort of my, my dad's big, bigger vision that now I can thank him for for sure, was sort of like, let's use JC's baseball skills, which apparently aren't going to get him to the big leagues, but can probably education. get education better school than I would have otherwise. I had decent grades, but my grades weren't good enough for a school like Fairfield. But the fact that I had a decent curveball got me into the school, which got me into, you know, an easy joke of an interview at Merrill Lynch. Like it was more of a formality. You know, they take Fairfield kids every summer. So I was just next in line. 
So that was great. And that was my first experience into the market. And up until then, so that was my junior year of college. I lived in New York City. So it was a blast. We partied. It was, I mean, it was amazing. Imagine 21 year old kid living in Soho, interning in Merrill. Like that was like the fact that I even made it out of that summer alive is a miracle. But um, so that's really when I fell in love with the markets. It was love is first sight. I mean, I was interested prior, like in 2000, I started sort of getting into it. 2001 started understanding what ETFs were and things like that. But it wasn't until that internship that really, and I knew that I didn't want to work at a huge firm like Merrill Lynch, right? That just wasn't for me. But the market for me, I was like reading the Wall Street Journal every day. Like it was like, it was, I was fascinated by the whole thing. And then uh, graduate. So then Josh Brown, reform broker, hires me out of college when I'm 22 years old. I mean, talk about like, you know, having a front row seat to, and then we, you know, he's been one of my best friends ever since. Of course, um, you know, he was my boss, but, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, we just became buddies. And um, so seeing his success and everything like that has been awesome. Good for him. And, um, you know, a lot, I was just fortunate that early in my career, the, the three, my three best friends were Phil Perlman. Josh Brown and Howard Lindzen. Like, those are my boys. So, like, you know, listening to those guys, JC, why don't you start a blog? Sure, I'll start a blog. Hey, JC, you know, maybe you should do this or don't do that. Or And then it, it, it was becoming a situation where, like, when I didn't listen to them, I wish I did. And when I did listen to them, it worked out in my favor. Uh, so, you know, ultimately, I built a blog in 2010, or they built it for me, right? I still wouldn't know how to do those things. Um, and... I started seeing traffic coming in from all over the world. My thought process in the market has always been very global. That's always made sense to me. Um, the technical analyst and then living in New York City for so long gave me such a huge advantage because once a month I was at a CMT event chapter meeting and listening to a different perspective on technical analysis in the markets. I saw everybody. I didn't miss a meeting. I didn't miss a single meeting for years. And I, I, I would go to every presentation I could. And then in New York, it was like, it's not like that these days, obviously. But back then, it was there was always something. It's like, hey, JC, I got us tickets. We're going to the Yacht Club tonight. It's like a Tuesday. We're going to the Yacht Club tonight to hear Jim Chanos debate Bill Gross about, like, treasury bonds or something, open bar and uh, free food. I'm and there. It's like two blocks from, like, our office, right? Because like, everything in Midtown is kind of, like, right there. And that was like all the time, like just random invites to like beautiful buildings to parties we had no business being in, you know, listening to people way smarter than, you know, and this was just like all the time, three times a week. Hey, JC, so-and-so's coming into town. We're all getting drinks. We're all getting dinner. Why don't you join us? Or, hey, JC, I'm coming into town. Why don't you get everybody together and let's go to dinner? Let's So like this was just all the time. And, you know, some evenings lasted longer than others, as you can imagine. But just being surrounded by all of that, you know, without even trying, right? Just the environment that I was in, you know, I was able to really learn so, so much. I mean, just an unfair advantage simply because of who I was with, where I was, when I was there, front row seat to the financial crisis, the whole thing, just lessons, lessons, lessons. Most of them the hard way, as most le best lessons need to be learned. Um, but that's really what it was. So when people are like, oh, JC, where did you find that chart or whatever? It's like, I don't know, at like 2 o'clock in the morning at some piano bar in the Upper East Side with some <laughs> PM from Switzerland. I mean, I don't know. 
like that, like over the years, you just collect these charts like baseball cards because you learn about them or you get inspired by a presentation you saw or a conversation you had or a dream you had. These days, I'm just like in bed and I'm thinking, I'm like, hmm, what if I change the denominator to that? And then I'm like, I need to write it down before I forget tomorrow. And then I wake up and there's these random notes not to forget to like build these charts. It's funny. <laughs> That's the story. Love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, obviously, I guess briefly for, for listeners, uh, JC is a, he's a technical guy. So he puts a lot of emphasis on price. Um, you know, and I like that because it tells you all you need to know, in my opinion. Now, I think JC that, you know, people get too caught up in the whys. Why is Apple up 3% today? Why is Amazon down 5% today? And my answer to that is, well, if it's down, then there's more supply than demand today, right? We don't know. You get all these CNBC alerts that say, you know, markets are trading down 2% because the 10 years now over 1.5%. But in my opinion, no one really knows the actual quote unquote reason why something's moving. It's just because of supply and demand, right? So can you kind of go into, you know, your analysis of the technicals and and why you don't really put much emphasis on fundamentals? Yeah. So it's two different things going on here. First of all, it's the human need for storytelling. It's why we're here. It's one of the reasons why Homo sapiens won our ability to tell each other stories. Like that's just human nature. That's just perfectly natural. So not to interrupt you, but do you follow Morgan Housel? Or do you read any of his stuff? Did you see the post he wrote a couple of weeks ago about good storytelling? No, but he, stu- he, he he would be the guy to write a post like that. Exactly. Yeah. And he was, I won't get into it, but he was talking about, you know, why does everyone win? Why does Elon Musk win when he, his company doesn't make any money? Because he can tell a story, right? And people believe in it. That's just human nature. Anything else would be unnatural, right? So those, that need to understand why or to, or to, for somebody to tell us why, even though we know it's probably BS, but at least it's a story that we're being told. That's actually very natural. So if you are aware enough to know that these emotions will come in and to acknowledge it when those emotions come in and laugh it off and not act upon those emotions is very advantageous versus 99% of the population that has absolutely no idea that they have that particular flaw And the media knows that they have very, very high paying psychologists working with them to manipulate the way things are done and said to take advantage of those human flaws maliciously for profit. And it doesn't make them bad people. I have a lot of friends that work in media and journalists and video production and all that stuff. They're great people. That's not what it is. It's the conflicts of interest in the business model where they are literally doing everything in their power to manipulate your mind and use that against you. All those lights and colors and all those bells and whistles. What do you think that's for? To make you depressed? No. You know, all the information coming around, making you think that you need to know those things, making you feel that FOMO that you are not informed if you're not. All of those things are done on purpose maliciously for their own profit so that they can pour themselves out to their sponsors, right? That's their business model. So that's one thing. The other thing is that by anybody, not just the media, but anybody in particular, when they are, um, when anybody in particular is trying to come up with a reason and tie two things and just assume that that's why price is moving is really, again, 
it's usually not so much irresponsible. It's usually a lack of awareness on their part. Like they actually, over the years, when they've done something so much, convince themselves that that's true. Like, okay, if you wake up in the morning, oil's up 3%. Look at the news, explosion in Syria. Oil up 3% on explosion in Syria, right? Like that, they think that they've convinced themselves that that's okay. They convince themselves that there aren't any, that there's nothing wrong with just blatant lies like that. And that's just now the norm. But the truth is, if you have any idea of the way markets actually work, the way institutions manage money, in many cases, incredibly irresponsibly, like you should see some of these uh, models. Like, I mean, it's absurd that that, but they, that's $100 billion in like these ridiculous strategies. But nonetheless, that's just the way the world works. Um, that's fine. There are good managers and bad managers. But what people don't understand is like a stock could be down 3%, right? And it could very easily and often is because there's a hedge fund or a fund out there, some institution that's getting blown up in some natural gas trade or in some yen unwind or God knows what they could be. It could be anything, but it has nothing to do with Apple. It's just that Apple is being used as a source of funds for that particular bomb going off in, in that fund because they were short oil when the, the bomb went off and in Syria and oil's ripping, they're getting smoked and they got to unwind some other massive position. And Apple just has to happens to be an incredibly liquid stock that they, that someone can easily get out of without destroying the price more than 3% and get out of a zillion shares that they have to cover the, the squeeze that they're getting crushed on in, in whatever natural gas or oil. And it has nothing to do with what Steve Jobs said or what uh, whoever the CEO is now. Like, it has nothing to do with that. Someone's blowing up yeah. in Europe because of some, uh, some trade that went against them. And, and they're using this as a source of funds. That happens every day. That happens every second of every day all over the market. So to, to, to just ignore that that's how markets actually work, like, I don't want to say that you're an idiot because most people, it's not, that, it's not that they're dumb. It's that they just, they don't know how markets work. Like that's how markets work. It's a supply and demand situation. It's a liquidity right. situation. Why are stocks going up? There's a great argument that's made that there's just a shortage of stocks. It's not because this company is doing something great or that company's doing changing the world. There just aren't enough stocks for the amount of money that's being put to work in the stock market. And the total number of companies trading, JC, continues to go down, right? You've seen those charts. Exactly right. The Wilshire 5000 has like 3,400 stocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, you want to ask the next question? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot, JC, is the importance of relative strength. And, you know, we use this too, but could you briefly describe, you know, for listeners, how this like fits into your process and what areas in the market, you know, are you currently seeing today of opportunity in terms of relative strength? Yeah. And it it goes back to understanding the way markets work, right? So if you're a buy side manager and stocks are under pressure, that's when you need to be buying your stocks. It's the, it's the only opportunity you have because you have to buy so many freaking shares. Like it's like ungodly amounts of shares that you need to buy. So in order for you to buy those shares, you need enough liquidity to be able to buy as much as you can buy. That is support, 
right? Like I talked to some of these PMs. They're like, yep, that was me supporting that stock. That was me, baby. Come to Papa. Right? <laughs> the big buy side funds, that's just the way it works. And when you talk about like, when it comes to liquidity events, right? Like they're few and far between. So when you're seeing the stock market getting crushed and there's a sector that's, hold, that's holding up green or a group of stocks or just one stock in particular that's holding up green, there's something going on there. Somebody's buying this very aggressively. So when the selling pressure in the market eases up, that's the one that shoots up the most. So think of it like the best way to put it, my friend Joe Fami, this is the way how he says it. So think about like a beach ball and you're holding the beach ball in a pool underwater, right? You can feel that pressure up against your arms, right? You can feel it. That's relative strength because when you release your arms, what happens to the ball? Shoots up in the air. So think about relative strength like that ball pressing up when it's being pushed down. Think of it like that. Um, you saw it. At the, listen, I, I have been Mr. Relative Strength for a long, long, long time. And I will tell you, JC, what did you learn in 2020 when I get asked that question? You know what I learned? That as much as I appreciated relative strength, I still underestimated it. That's <laughs> how powerful relative strength was last year. You saw it. You saw it. it. The stock we built on March the 10th, we built an index called the Coronavirus Index. And it was basically the highest relative strength readings. <laughs> that was it. And as it turns out, if you go look, it's the names like DocuSign and Zoom and Activision and stocks that did very well. But the market was telling you, go back and look at these stocks and go back and look at the best performers and look how quickly they exceeded the Q1 highs. The first ones that did that were the ones that exploded. Go back to 9-11. What was the first stock in the NASDAQ to make a new high after 9-11? Let me see if I can do it. After 9-11, NASDAQ. Yeah. It wasn't I just, AOL, was it? No, it didn't have been AOL. It was, Whole, it? it was Whole Foods. And then look at the relative strength after that. You yeah. know, look at, um, at the, uh, look at the, in 2016, when the market bottomed after the 2015, there were countries and sectors and stocks that bottomed in January. In the, the S&P, the Dow, Europe, Japan, all bottomed in February. Go back and look how well the ones that bottomed in January did moving forward. There was relative strength. They were already making higher lows. Um, so it's evidence of institutional accumulation is really what relative strength is, as opposed to the opposite, relative weakness, right? People talk about, you know, great financial crisis. The market peaked in 07, and then out of nowhere, it just crashed. First of all, it wasn't out of nowhere. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns peaked the prior January and February of 2007. The S&P and Dow continued to make new highs into the fourth quarter. Those stocks peaked in Q1. By the time the S&P made its highs in 07, Lehman and Bear were already pushing down new lows. Financials making new relative lows. I mean, everything was already falling apart. There was even a joke at the time. Josh was the one who would say that in 07. He'd be like, dude, if you're not buying, back then it was the Four Horsemen. This is before Fang. This is the Fang of their day. So it was the Four Horsemen. It was like Research in Motion, Amazon, uh, Google, whatever. It was the Four Horsemen. And, they were, and those were the only stocks going up. He didn't, and I wasn't really quite aware of it at the time. But essentially what he was saying is relative strength has fallen apart. Market breath has fallen apart. They're, you know, If you're not buying these four names, don't even bother coming into the office. That's what he would say. And that was like right before the market peaked. So, I mean, you, you could see that deterioration a year ago. These people were like, oh, my God, the stock market crash came out of nowhere, coronavirus. 
Talk about being telegraphed. There were more signs saying, get the heck out of stocks well before any crash or coronavirus than any crash in market history. Regional banks peaked in December, right? Most stocks around the world, emerging markets had been getting destroyed for a while, right? Um, you look, yeah, advanced decline line was already making lower highs, small caps, lower highs, mid caps, transports, nowhere to be found. You know, regional banks making new all-time relative lows, uh, transports making new relative lows in February. So there was just no evidence suggesting that buying stocks was a good idea, quite the opposite. Meanwhile, yen, bonds, gold, all breaking out. Relative strength out of consumer staples, which is classic for an environment where stocks are under pressure. All of this is happening at the exact same time. Interest rates, right? Um, looking like they're just going to collapse. And then you think, you know, what is the market environment going to look like if rates are collapsing? Probably not doing pretty well, you know, and then all those other things going on. That's relative strength, or in that case, it was relative weakness. And then at the bottom, the first ones that broke out to new highs, they were the leaders, right? And, yep. uh, you know, now we're seeing that sector rotation. We're seeing new relative strength, right? So it's relative strength rotating, essentially. And where are we seeing it now? We're seeing it in energy. We're seeing it in banks. We're not just seeing it in the United States. We're seeing it around the world. I just had a, uh, a meeting in India. And what are we talking about? Banks and energy. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because it's it's one of those questions that like, you know, people, you know, will ask all the time, you know, why don't you guys, you know, like, like financials or energy over the past like two years. And it's like the easiest way to explain it is if you put up a relative chart of the S&P 500 to financials or to energy, you would not want to be in that trade, right? Because that chart is going from the upper left-hand corner to the bottom right, and you want it to be doing the opposite, and it's not doing that. So that's why past two years, haven't really liked financials or energy. What led the market uh, up higher after March? Technology. What were the names that held up best during the decline in February and March? Technology. Technology. So it's just, it's, it's, I don't want to make it more complicated than it needs to be, right? It's just that simple. You want to be in these leading industries and these leading names when stuff like this happens. And then what do you guys tell people when they're like, oh, well, I'm a growth investor. So this is a bad market for me. Do you say like, get over it, start buying value? Or like, do you just say like, what is a growth investor? Like, what is that? that that's what my question. I'm like, well, how do you define growth? Because there's a uh, gazillion different ways that someone could define growth. You know, every, everyone asked, do you guys like do more growth, more value, more small, more mid, more large? I was like, we're agnostic to all that. We want to buy the stuff that's going up quicker than the other stuff, right? I want my portfolio to grow. If that's what makes me a growth investor, then yeah. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. If that's what you mean by a growth investor, then yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of talk about rotation back into, you know, value names. And typically, you know, that includes energy and financials, like you just said. So if those, you know, industries begin to lead and it's not just a head fake, then yeah, then obviously we're going to want to have a little piece of that, right? Um, you know, so that's kind of how we answer that question. Yeah, it, it's fascinating seeing, you know, rotation, especially after a long trend like this where emerging markets have been underperforming for so long, value has been underperforming for so long, financials, as you mentioned, oh, yes. like people forgot about these things. And there are a lot of new investors that weren't around for other cycles where those were great stocks uh, early in my career. In fact, 03, 04, 05, 06, like that was the place to be. Energy, materials, commodities, base metals, the machines that take the stuff out of the ground, the countries where they're taking stuff out of the ground from, you know, the Chiles, the Latin America, 
I mean, Walter Energy, Peabody, like these names, do they even exist anymore? Like I haven't heard the Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch. Those were the names to be in back in the day. And then obviously it, not for a long time, but there was a time. And then I just imagine a, a future maybe. I mean, it's got to be eventually where people then forget like they did. They had forgotten about tech then because tech got destroyed after 2000. So during that next cycle, nobody wanted anything to do with tech. They were scared to death. They were in the other stuff. And then eventually tech made its move. And it's just this cycle of just crazy humans just doing crazy human things. It's great. Right. Yeah. The craziness has lasted since the market's inception, like you alluded to earlier in the show. And if you want to be respectful respectful of of, every other year, like the panic of 1870, the panic of like every other year, there was a panic, which is interesting because that goes back to where cycle cycles happened quicker in the infancy stages of the market. We're seeing that in crypto in the infancy stages of the crypto market. The cycles happen faster. It's the same patterns, the same cycles. They just happen quicker. You know, instead of taking decades, it takes a few years. Like it's really uh, fascinating comparing those two. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I had another question prepared, JC, and you pretty much just answered it um, a little bit ago. So I, I don't want to really ask the same question and have you regurgitate everything that you mentioned, which was great. So uh, for time, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Okay. Yeah, sure. So we know you love good wine. So right now, what's your favorite wine these days that you've been drinking a lot of? Oh, you know, so for me, wine is more of an academic endeavor. So I, you know, I'm a certified sommelier. I'm also a French wine scholar. I'm a certified Japanese sake advisor. So for me, as my wife says, I think you just like taking tests. <laughs> yeah. I would say the same thing if I didn't know much about you. Yeah, I mean, listen, for me, I like the stuff because it, it, you know, it really, it's hard. It's really hard. So it helps take my mind away from the market, you know, kind of, um, you know, now I have a baby girl, so I don't really have that problem anymore. I have enough to get my mind off the market. Uh, but before the baby, uh, you know, I was, I was studying for these exams, certified Somalia, just a great experience, great people. Um, and so as I continue to, you know, once you build a base, wine is kind of like the market. Like as soon as you know a few things, you realize you don't know anything. And it's like it opens up this giant world, but you don't learn that until you learn a few things. And then you're like, oh, my God, I know nothing. I'm never going to know anything. You're right. You just do it right so wine is like that. So what I like to do is I like to dive into different regions of the world, um, really dive deep. These days, I'm drinking a lot of Syrah. They call it Shiraz in Australia, yep. uh, from the Barossa Valley and then the McLaren Valley. So McLaren Valley is kind of like Sonoma. Barossa is more like Napa. So it's hotter, you know, more ripe fruit, heavier tannins, uh, you know, warmer climate, different soil. In McLaren, you're going to get more of that Mediterranean, Sonoma sort of feel, a little bit cooler, less tannic wines. But that's a raw and Barossa. Because uh, the McLaren's more like easy drinking. Like if you're at a party and you just want to start crushing wine, you drink the McLaren. If you want, like if you've got like a steak, something meaty, something that you need a little more bite to, you drink the Barossa. We got a twofer here, Mark. Yeah, I do. Sommelier and a, a professional when it comes to the charts. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And so- sake has always boggled my mind because I just don't understand it. I, everything tastes the same to me. I guess I just got to experience with it a little more. How'd you start there, JC? Well, I'm obsessed with everything Japan. It started with the candlesticks and then got, you know, then the sushi and then the Wagyu you know, but you gotta be, you gotta be ecstatic then because right. Cause the, the Nikkei just hit 30 year highs. Right. So you gotta be. 
I'm all for it, dude. I'm all for it. I'm, I'm so obsessed with Japan. And the move is because I go to India quite often. So the move is you go to India, you swing by Tokyo on the way home, right? You can either spend a couple of nights there or go and go to Kyoto and do the whole thing. Or at the very least, you could do a nine-hour layover. And that get you get two meals. So you basically land, you go straight <laughs> the fish market you crush as much sushi as you possibly can then go do something go to the park whatever you want to do in, in tokyo and then you go to shibuya you get some wagyu beef yep. you know with some sake and then you get back on the plane pass out next thing you know you're back in america that's i cool. love it i love it that's the next trip we're that's putting another trip, trip. Yeah, done absolutely so right. i guess uh you know just before you know we kind of sign off here jc you know What's the one thing or the one or two things that, you know, that you think you could add value to our listeners? Because again, you know, we talk about this all the time that the market doesn't, and you say this all the time too, the market doesn't care what JC thinks. The market doesn't care what matter Mark thinks. You know, you, in my opinion, you need to ride the trends that we currently have currently the trends up. So we're in good times right now and the trend eventually will turn down. And, you know, you take action at that point, but I think people have a really hard time wrapping their head around, well, I think this should happen, but it's not happening. How do, how do you get someone to change their mindset when they're thinking like that? So two things. First of all, it's understanding that we don't know what's going to happen next. And the second thing is trying to visualize what the environment is going to look like if we're correct and what the market is going to look like if we're incorrect. So first, let's, let's talk about the first one. It is very, very powerful and advantageous to be aware of the fact that you don't know what the market is going to do next. You don't know what it's going to do. The good part is, is that nobody else does either, right? Some people think they do. In some cases, they are very confident, a little too confident or, or much too confident, um, in some cases, people are just completely clueless and they're like, I don't know anything and everything in between. But the bottom line is, I don't care if you're Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, I don't care who you are. You don't know what the market is going to do next, but it's a huge advantage and very um, satisfying. And, and a lot of, it takes a lot of load off your shoulders, a lot of pressure off yourself when you acknowledge that you don't know what the market's going to do next. And that's okay. And nobody else does either. It's like such a huge load off your shoulders. Like, you see, why are you always so relaxed? And why are you so confident? It's like, the only thing I'm confident is, and I don't know what the hell is going to happen next. I'll tell you what I think might happen and how we're positioning ourselves to take advantage of the off chance that we get it right. But I don't know what's going to happen. So that's one thing. Okay. The next thing is now taking that thought to the next level. Having a thesis, right? You mentioned stocks are up, so you're bullish. Fine. What does the market need to do to prove that thesis invalid? What does the environment look like if Mark is wrong, let's just say, right? What does that market environment look like? What's happening to that? When you think about what the market's going to be like when you're wrong, there's got to be a lot of things that are probably happening in different asset classes. There's probably a whole lot of things that can give you a heads up that you're wrong, even before the market proves you wrong. And then at the same time, what is the market going to look like if you're right? Right? So let's say you guys are bullish. Let's just say, I don't want to put words in it. But let's just say you think stocks are going up. You think market's going to go higher. You know what? Well, let's reverse it. Let's just say what JC thinks. Okay, let's just see what I think. I think stocks go up. 
I think the rotation into value is real. I think the rotation into emerging markets and global is real, right? All of that makes sense to me. Higher base metals, higher interest rates, lower bonds, lower yen, uh, gold keeps underperforming, you know, stocks keep doing well. Um, fine. That's what we, that's what we think. What is the market going to have to do to prove that thesis wrong? I could name you 10 off the top of my head because that's what I'm more concerned with. Right. What does, I can give you 10. First of all, the New York Stock Exchange Composite and Dow Jones Industrial Average are going to be back below last year's highs. What do we know about the beginning of bear markets and severe sell-offs? You got whipsaws for days. Whipsaws all over the place. Classic for the beginning. So they, those two indexes in particular are set up. Acqui, all, all World, XUS. Throw that one to the list too. Those three, if they are not above last year's highs, that would be very in line with the beginning of a uh, severe correction for stocks. Now, right. to be clear, that's not what's happening. We're still above those levels, but those are three very, very easy ones. Another thing, you're probably going to start to see staples outperforming. Staples just made new multi-decade relative lows, which is consistent with stocks doing well, right? So you can also flip that the other way around. What does the market look like if JC's right? Well, Acqui All Country World Index is above those. Uh, you know, XUS is above the former highs, New York Stock Exchange Composite, Dow Industrials, all above last year's highs is consistent with, JC, with, with JC's thesis being correct. The advanced decline line is probably going to start making lower highs. It just put it in an all-time high. You'll probably see fewer and fewer countries and sectors around the world making new highs. You're actually seeing more of them, right? So what is the world going to look like? Some sort of flight into these defensive areas, Aussie yen, uh, needs to start rolling over. Um, gold starting to outperform copper. Interest rates rolling over and bonds catching a bid. I mean, bonds can't even outperform a basket of fixed income. Like, treasury bonds are the worst place in the world. So, right. One that would flip high, high yield relative to treasuries. That's exactly right. High yield keeps making new highs. It's, it's like high yield investment grade treasuries, right? So if that's the case in terms of performance... Stocks are probably doing pretty well. If you start to see high yield underperforming and treasury starting to catch a bid, I mean, they can't catch a bid. Stocks go down, bonds go down. Stocks go up, bonds go down. Like it's, like, <laughs> you know, so until that starts to change, I just, we don't see enough evidence to say, hey, we should be spending more time looking for stocks to sell. It's actually the opposite. We keep seeing more evidence and this is not anything new. We've been seeing it for a long time. We keep seeing further evidence. These breath thrusts are classic characteristics of early cycles. So we start seeing expansions in the new low list, right? Like in the new 21-day low list, 63-day low list. We start seeing spikes there. That's another, you know, we haven't seen those, you know? So, th so those are the two things I see. Be aware that you don't know what the hell is going to happen next. And then try to think through what the environment's going to look like to prove you right and what the market's going to look like if it's proving you wrong. Yeah, that was great. Um, well, thank you so much, JC, for, for jumping on with us for, for the past uh, 40 minutes or so. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, obviously everyone can follow JC on Twitter at All Star Charts um, and can subscribe to his podcast, Technical Analysis Radio, um, on their favorite podcast outlet. Uh, anywhere else, JC, that you would send people to check out your work? Yeah, go to the blog, allstarcharts.com, uh, YouTube, StockTwits, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse. We're having a lot of fun on Clubhouse at 1130 uh, weekdays. We get on there. We start taking questions. 
Um, you know, some of my smart friends around the world pop in, you know, from Spain or in India or in Latin America or throughout North America. So it's fun. You know, every day is a new day. That's the one thing the market promises us that uh, never gets boring, never gets old. Always something new. Good. All right, JC, we'll, we'll let you run. Thanks again for coming on and, and we'll chat soon. Okay. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me guys. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.